The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. How is everyone doing today, ladies and gentlemen? Yay, yay. We're doing great, Dustin. That's fantastic, folks, because it is Thursday night going into Friday morning, folks, and I've been busy researching and connecting dots and just going over all this stuff that we've covered in the last, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 episodes on central bank digital currency, universal basic income, Wide Awake Jim just sent me a lot more documents that he's going to be reviewing here, and I told him you guys are primed and ready for his research because we spent the last 13, 14 episodes on central bank digital currency, smart contracts, Ethereum, blockchain, and everything else. So we are dissecting this entire push for a complete and total slave state via central bank digital currency, a a currency that is programmable and expirable and does not allow you to save. And so tonight we're going to get into the... um, World Government Summit discussion on the topic, quote, are we ready for a new world order, end quote. That is the topic. Uh, As I said, the global, uh, or sorry, the World Government Summit is out of Dubai, United Arab Emirates. We went over that a little bit in episode 111, so I'd check that out if you're interested. I found a few more pieces to that puzzle that I'm going to pull up and show you momentarily. But first, uh, and I'm not going to get into any personal stuff tonight because we've got so much to cover here, and I'm trying to wrap this up today, uh, hopefully to lead into a conversation with Dan Golvach tomorrow about the spiritual aspects behind these prison planet warden world elites, these economic terrorists, these central bank mafia bosses, the technocrats, the transhumanists, why they strive to have world domination and complete and total control and power over every last human being and the entire natural world. But uh, one of the things I've mentioned here, a few times is that consensus again a software development company founded by joseph lubin in 2015 joseph lubin was the partner and co-founder of ethereum with vitalak buterin who was funded by transhumanist technocrat government contractor peter thiel he is folks if you don't believe me you can go back and listen to all the episodes we did on peter thiel uh and so vitalak buterin known as the founder slash co-founder of Ethereum, was funded by Peter Thiel in 2014 to finish up his development of Ethereum. 
And he did that along with his partner, Joseph Lubin, who then went on to found Consensus. And Consensus is working with all of these central banks. They're working with private sector partners to build out the current financial infrastructure in a way that can distribute and help with transactions of central bank digital currency. And so I told you one of their partners, and I'm going to pull this up on the screen for the video audience over here at pain.tv slash gold. Uh, one of their partners is Visa, and I went over this uh, several episodes ago, so I'm not going to go through this whole article, but this is over at usa.visa.com, and there's a reason why I'm bringing this back up, folks, because I've done additional research into Consensus's partners, and then I want to show you how easy it's going to be for them to flip the switch and to force us into a central bank digital currency system, at least right here in the United States, all right, which is obviously our key focus, although we're tracking what they're doing all around the world because it all ties together under the World Bank, under Bank for International Settlements, under International Monetary Fund, under the United Nations, through partnerships coming out of the World Economic Forum. It all ties together at an international level, but obviously for you and I, we're concerned about the United States. Now, I know we have listeners in Australia and Ireland all over the place. Uh, you guys are obviously interested in what's happening. My feeling is if the United States falls, everyone else falls. It's just pretty easy. Um, all right, let's just take a look. A uh, quick reminder here. Again, this is at usa.visa.com, and this was from January 2022. It said, envisioning a future of central bank digital currencies, Visa partners with consensus to help bridge central bank digital currency networks with existing payment rails. So what this is about, folks, is that Visa, and let me pull this up here for you in this uh, article, Visa already has access to 80 million merchant locations worldwide okay it says right here if central bank digital currency networks are seamlessly integrated into your existing banking app you'd be able to use your cbdc linked visa card at the checkout okay so what it's saying right there is let's say you have a visa card all right, and then you have that programmed into your iPhone, let's say, so you're using Apple Pay. Uh, or you're able to pull up your card and tap it there uh, through the iPhone. Well, if your CBDC-linked um, Visa card uh, is connected to your banking app, then you're able to use that at checkout. You're also able to use the Visa card, too. I've read about this. So, for instance, you go up to the checkout at the grocery store and you tap your card with the little RFID chip or you insert it so the chip is inside the machine or you use the old strip. It'll come up on the screen if it's a debit card, a Visa debit credit card. It will say, do you want to use credit or do you want to use debit? We all experience this every day at the gas station, at the grocery store. Well, there'll be a third option. It says uh, central bank digital currency. So it goes on to say, are tap your digital wallet loaded with your CBDC funds and payment credential to pay securely at any of the 80 million merchant locations worldwide that accept Visa and any of its connected networks all through existing retailers, existing payment uh, terminal. All right, so the reason why Visa is partnering in with consensus who's working with the central banks is because visa is going to lend its current infrastructure to the central bankers so that they can move cbdc across visa's infrastructure there's a lot of these partnerships going on now 
All right, with the uh, commercial banks, the so-called private sector side of this business, the regulated non-banks, financial institutions, payment gateways, and such. All these partnerships are currently going on. I'm going to expand on this in the future because it is very important, folks. I mentioned to you SquareUp and PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, Stripe, all these different payment services, uh, all connected into this. So you have Consensus here partnered with Visa. And again, we went through this whole article a few episodes ago, so I'm not going to do it again. But you see the power there that Visa is offering is that we have 80 million merchants worldwide. If they're willing to accept central bank digital currency overnight uh, off of their cash register, their point of sale system, then uh, that's pretty easy. 80 million merchants will accept it immediately. And as I've explained to you, if the merchant can accept the CBDC in a way that they don't have to learn any new technology, like let's just say they fire up their square point of sale system tomorrow, and it just says, you're now able to accept CBDC. They don't even know what that means. But when I walk up to the counter with a CBDC Visa card or a CBDC uh, QR code, or a CBDC uh, payment app on my phone, and I pay, and it just transfers to their account. It tells them they have three CBDC tokens. They don't really care as long as they believe they can spend that in the future. All right, it's just like somebody walking in with an Amex card, Visa card, MasterCard. The store just accepts it because at the end of the night, it balances out, and they have money in their account. That's all they care about. So that's the partnership here with Visa. Now, We're over at MasterCard.com. So this is MasterCard's website. And this is an article from April 2021. All right. And this says, Partnership with Consensus supports the future of multi-blockchain commerce. We have not reviewed this yet. It says, MasterCard and Consensus have announced a partnership to power the future of commerce. Consensus, a software engineering firm in the blockchain space, provides tools and services to support the Ethereum ecosystem and helps developers build next-generation networks to enable companies to launch more powerful financial infrastructures and technology. Consensus Quorum, and Quorum is a software consensus bought from JP Morgan, says, is an open-source protocol layer that enables enterprises to leverage Ethereum for their private or public production blockchain applications. I told you Ethereum is key to all this. And Peter Thiel funded Vitalak Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, to uh, launch Ethereum. All right, so you have Peter Thiel behind this, folks. Big time transhumanist and technocrat, one of the most dangerous uh, kind of front men in this whole technocratic system right now. It goes on to say Quorum includes customizable features required for enterprises to operate a secure, scalable permission network as part of MasterCard's multi-blockchain strategy. It will work with consensus on a variety of initiatives. Joseph Lubin, all right, so he was the co-founder of Ethereum with Vitalik Buterin at the time that Peter Thiel was funding it. Joseph Lubin, founder and CEO of Consensus and a co-founder of Ethereum, said, quote, Consensus's products are the primary points of access to Ethereum for developers, enterprises, and consumers. Digital scarcity, transparency, and automated financial settlement using the interoperable digital asset standards of Ethereum are helping accelerate financial innovation in a variety of industries, which range from NFTs, non-fungible tokens, to central bank digital currencies. We are very excited to work with the digital assets and blockchain team at MasterCard to lead the convergence of traditional and blockchain-based financial technologies, end quote. So I'm not going to go through the rest of this uh, press release at MasterCard.com, but you see now they have this partnership, Consensus does, 
uh, building on top of Ethereum. They have this partnership here with MasterCard. So they're partnered with Visa. They're partnered with MasterCard. And this is just a little bit more over here at Coindesk.com. And this is an article from December 2021. All right. The original article was from April, but now Consensus actually expanded its relationship with MasterCard. It says Consensus collaborates with MasterCard on new Ethereum scaling system. The software firm said projects built using Consensus rollups can reach a throughput of up to 10,000 transactions per second on a private chain. And that that's what they're working on now, is expanding its ability to handle uh, more transactions. And so I'm not going to go through all this because it's a lot of techie stuff that probably is not that important to you. But it says MasterCard and Consensus announced an uh, initial partnership in April as part of a $65 million fundraising round for consensus that included large bank investors such as JP Morgan and UBS. So see, consensus now is acting as the connect- connective tissue between Visa, MasterCard, the banks like JP Morgan, UBS, and others, while they're also serving and working for the central banks. We already know that consensus did the software for the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub Embridge project and built that on top of Ethereum as well. And then finally, I want to show you this because it's important. Over at consensus.net, this is from March 2021. We have Hyperledger and Consensus collaborate on Ethereum webcast series. It says blockchain experts share best practices with the Hyperledger community. We went through Hyperledger a bit a few episodes ago, so if you want to check that out, please do so. It says Hyperledger and Consensus Quorum, that's Consensus's uh, product it bought from JP Morgan, says are uh, joining forces to produce a series of webcasts to share best practices for how Hyperledger and Ethereum could work together. Hyperledger is an open source community focused on developing a suite of stable frameworks, tools, and libraries for enterprise-grade blockchain deployments. The Linux Foundation hosts the projects and counts consensus as one of the premier members. Now, if you remember, Hyperledger was behind one of the products that consensus was involved in that was being talked about as the U.S.'s central bank digital currency back when we passed the first stimulus bill during COVID land, the high school theater production in March of 2020, we actually almost had central bank digital currency passed in there, but it was pulled out at the last minute. Well, Hyperledger was involved with the partnership with Consensus that almost brought us the CBDC that was passed uh, under that law. And then you have here, American Express is reinventing rewards using blockchain. And this is from January going all the way back to 2019. And it says, in December at the Hyperledger Global Forum in Basel, American Express was the most significant non-tech company to share details about its blockchain applications. So you have American Express here working with Hyperledger that's important um, partnered with consensus all right i also found some other connections between consensus and american express as well so you have consensus the leader right the leader in working with the central banks and then working with the uh, so-called private sector companies partnered with visa mastercard and American Express in various ways, all focused on utilizing their current infrastructure for blockchain, central bank, digital currency, and such. And I'm going to show you when we get back for the break why this is so important, folks. It's not just about gaining access to the point-of-sale systems at the merchants. It's about gaining access to the card 
that you have in your wallet. Why? Because that is the entry point. That is the buy-in. That is the adoption needed to push forward with central bank digital currency. And that's why we research all this stuff, ladies and gentlemen, so we can tie together all of the pieces. I'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Dustin Gold. Welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Payne.tv slash gold. All right, folks, let me show you this. Just doing a bit of research... Over here at the Dustin Gold Standard. All right, so we've got consensus partnered in with Visa, MasterCard, and American Express. We know that Visa is working heavily. Uh, I mean, they had an interview with one of the top Visa uh, folks. She's working on this project with consensus and the central banks, and they're literally groveling. You know, they're bowing down at the feet of the central bank economic terrorists and saying, let us play ball. We can bring this into 80 million merchants worldwide. Now, you say to yourself, how many Visa, MasterCard, and Amex cards are out there in the world? And I found this information at UpgradedPoints.com. And you can find these statistics on many different websites. But it says, uh, how many credit card holders are in the United States? 183 million Americans have credit cards, according to the Census Bureau. And this can be broken down uh, by type. So 183 million Americans. What's the population of America right now? 331.9 million Americans. Oh, U.S. population over 18 years old. Let's see. Let's see what that is, folks. It says over 18 years old is 209 million Americans, 209 million Americans, and uh, 183 million Americans have credit cards. All right, so that's crazy, folks, 183 million out of 219 million. So that leaves you with, uh, it was 219, right? No, 209, 209. So you have 26 million Americans, less than 10% of this country do not have credit cards. So if they can take everyone with credit cards and push them into the adoption of central bank digital currency by allowing you to spend that money through your card that you already hold in your wallet or through your banking app, associated with your card or through your Apple Pay or your Google Wallet, Okay, it's very easy to force the adoption, you see. So if there's 20, uh, 27 or whatever, 28 million of us left that don't have one, okay, we don't really matter. We're eventually just going to get forced into it because we'll be socially engineered into it because when everyone else is spending it and all of the merchants are accepting it, you know, we can sit there and resist it, but we're just not going to be part of that system. And if we're not prepared to actually live outside of that system, if we don't have a half Amish community that we built around ourselves and we can't barter, we can't trade, uh, we can't spend with pine cones, you know, we're going to be forced 
into that system because everyone else will be using that system. It says right here, this is important, 104 million Visa cards are out there. Uh, 99 million store cards, and if you look it up, the store cards, so let's say a Macy's card or a Home Depot card, they're backed either by Visa or MasterCard. It says 83 million MasterCards are out there, so you have 104 million Visa cards, 83 million MasterCards. You have 56 million gas cards, and those cards are all backed by Visa or MasterCard, and then you have 36 million American Express cards. And I think it said, uh, I was reading, yeah, here we are. How many credit cards do most people own? The average American owns 3.84 credit cards in Q3 2020, according to Experian. All right. So you got Americans running around with about four credit cards in their pocket, 183 million Americans out of 209 adults, 209 million adults have credit cards. And you've got a mix out there of Visa, MasterCard, and American Express. And then you have all of those now partnered with Consensus, who's working with the central bank and running projects with Visa and MasterCard on blockchain directly with Visa tying them into central bank digital currency. So as you can see, the adoption of this can be very very easy because it's all about making the uh, process simple and streamlined for the consumer right so if you woke up tomorrow and the government says okay we're now issuing central bank digital currency through the federal reserve and what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to go down to the social security office fill out a 16 page form by hand submit that wait nine weeks to get four digits added to your social security number and then wait another 11 weeks to get a card then when you get that card you're going to have to scan the qr code with your phone log in through your computer put in the code that we sent you set up two-step authentication we're going to text you a six-digit code that you're going to punch into the computer that then is going to trigger your phone to ask you if you signed in for the computer and then you realize your email was wrong, so you didn't get the email that warned you. And then from there, you're going to have to download an app. And then you take the app to your local government branch, and you're going to show that to them. They're going to sign off, and then you're going to have to go down to the DMV. And then the DMV is going to take a new photo, issue a new license, which is digital. You're going to get that in three months. And then once you have that, you bring that back to the Social Security. You see what I'm saying? So if, if that is their pathway to get from A to B, no one's going to do it, right? There's going to be no adoption. The people are just going to say, this is crazy, I'm not going to do it. But if tomorrow, through all of their media propagandist partners from mainstream media, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, all the way down to all the big podcasters like Joe Rogan, to the influencers like Kim Kardashian, and so they take all of their paid propagandists out of the modern Operation Mockingbird, and they just go, oh, CBDC is out here, Uh, everybody's getting it, it's awesome, and don't worry, all you have to do is when you plug in your Visa card, At the store, you're going to choose credit, debit, or CBDC. It's going to come out of your CBDC wallet, and you're going to manage your CBDC inside of your existing Chase account or your Visa app or your uh, TD Bank app or whatever it may be. Boom. Adoption is literally overnight. 
So that's why they're working so hard to get these partners because they're already in your pocket with the credit cards and the debit cards. They're already in your pocket with the smartphone and the apps. And so now all they need to do is be able to roll that out and make adoption as smooth and as seamless as possible. And like I've been saying several times, if you chip away with large groups of folks out there, like the Social Security uh, senior citizens, 20% of the country receives Social Security, uh, they can just say we're going to start issuing Social Security via CBDC. Now, 20% of the country, one-fifth of the country, one out of every five people you're standing in line with at the grocery store are now accepting cbdc into their bank account and spending it at the store one-fifth of the country can force adoption in a matter of days i mean there might be a couple hiccups but you know what happens within a matter of days everyone gladly accepts it i don't understand this tap card now walk in the grocery store you'll see all the old ladies up tap 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 tapity tap tap they love it i love tapping my card it's so much fun So that is how fast you can uh, force adoption on this. So I wanted to bring that up. I think it's very important for you to understand that. Uh, Look, I'm not here to black pill and say this is inevitable. It's the end of the world. But I am going to tell you that we do have to accept some realities here. And after 13, 14 episodes digging into this, these guys are so far ahead of what anyone is even talking about. It's no longer theories, folks. They're actually building it. The partnerships are being formed. The technology is being built. And then when you look at the strategic partners like Visa, MasterCard, and Amex, you can figure out exactly why those strategic partnerships are being formed. And then when you listen to the central bankers, the economic terrorists the uh, world bank mafia bosses at these panel discussions at the world economic forum at the international monetary fund at the united nations at the bank for international settlements at the uh, world government summit all right you listen to them talking about how the public private partnership is so important we the central banks will provide the the money the stability the trust and then the private sector will provide the innovation and the technology. And they admit they've been partners for 100 years. They've been running the same game under the same system for a very long time. All right, we're going to move on now to the uh, World Government Summit. Uh, First, I need to show you a couple more things. We started reviewing this yesterday. Uh, This summit comes out of Dubai. If you want to know the history of it, you can listen to episode 111. But right now, I just want to show you this, uh, some more information I found. This is at digitaldubai.ae. This is a government website here. And it says, our initiatives, since its inception, the Digital Dubai office has launched over 130 initiatives in partnership with government and private sector entities. Some key initiatives include the Dubai Data Initiative, the Dubai Blockchain Strategy, the Happiness Agenda, the Dubai AI Roadmap, and the Dubai Paperless Strategy. And I'm showing you this because Dubai is a smart city and the united arab emirates the country is working to turn the entire country into a smart country i mean this is this is working uh operating at warp speed folks so if you go on their site you will see these various blocks here data first ai principles uh dubai startup happiness agenda 
Oh, yeah, they say that the technology is going to make everyone happier. The AI lab, the Dubai blockchain, and the Dubai paperless strategy. So you can go through here and you'll see all the different smart stuff that is going on in Dubai. This is for real. Uh, and all these U.S. tech companies are coming into Dubai to help them. We know that Amazon Web Services is there, Microsoft, Google, and many, 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 many others. Government contractors from the United States now going into Dubai to help build up this uh, smart city. So, uh, who would have known, ladies and gentlemen? Who would have known? Now, here's a good project I found. This is at mobility-innovators.com. You can also go through this at Dubai's uh, websites. It says RTA, that's the Road Transport Authority. Uh, Dubai uses artificial intelligence to monitor taxi drivers on road behavior. Now, they're also doing this with bus drivers, school bus drivers. The program has really expanded. I found bits and pieces about this in various articles across the internet. So it says RTA, Dubai deploys artificial intelligence techniques to monitor the behavior of taxi drivers in cooperation with Akakis Technologies, developer of the smart camera system and taxis. The project is a proactive measure to know the behavior of the driver using the captured images of their performance behind the wheel by smart cameras and other AI systems installed in the vehicles. The quality of images about drivers on road behavior captured by the AI systems and transmitted to the monitoring senator for analysis is as high as 99.92%. The move is expected to enable RTA to identify and alert drivers who breach traffic rules and regulations and subject them to rehabilitation courses in the case of repeated violations. So they're actually uh, talking about, I found out about making everyone in Dubai install this system in their car if it doesn't come in the car. So you'll be driving around in your car being monitored by the government's artificial intelligence at all times. And if you're driving outside of the parameters of of the law and regulations, your car will be turned off and you'll be forced to go to rehab and learn how to drive. So, folks, this is amazing. I mean, you want to look at what's coming, look at China's social score system, look at Dubai's smart city, uh, Saudi Arabia's building this. I mean, this stuff is coming at warp speed, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's here. It's arrived. I said we live inside of the culture of technocracy. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to step outside of the culture of technocracy momentarily and take a short break and have a sip of tea and just calm down as we sit here and continue to analyze the world around us, the true history, the true present, and the true future of humanity. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold of the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Join the discussion at Pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.TV. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Pain.TV slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold. And you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. Uh, folks, I can take all this stuff and edit it up into creepy little videos with sci-fi music. But is not the uh, 
the real information. Is that not creepy enough? I mean, we're sitting here breaking it down. I want you to understand that it's real. It's here. It's right in front of us. They're not hiding it. So I don't have to make it like a creepy sci-fi thriller and put all kinds of creepy music to it. The World Economic Forum is rising into power. But we don't have to do all that because we have to break this stuff down. I think part of the disconnect and part of the reason why folks get called conspiracy theorists is because when you edit those things and you put them together and you make them creepier, uh, then, then people that are that are like normies, they see it and they go, oh, this is some conspiracy theory. But when you're actually presenting the information in the way that it's written, in the way that it's reported on, in the way the government websites have it, you know, we're not trying to uh, make it all theatrical here. I mean, this stuff is real. I think if you filed the show for the last 113 episodes, you have a pretty solid understanding of what the world actually is. And uh, people are just not explaining it properly. This is it. This is the world. All right, I'm over here at golfnews.com. And this says, this is important because we heard Bo Lee, the deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund, talk about how they're going to utilize central bank digital currency to track everyone's purchases down to a cup of coffee. When you bought it, where you bought it, what kind of coffee it is. And then that will be sent up to a database and that data will be brokered by the central banks that claim to be part of the public sector, government, the state. And they're going to sell that information or give that information to the so-called private sector partners. And that's what they're going to get in return for lending their infrastructure and for distributing central bank digital currency. And they could run real-time credit scores on you. And that's how they're going to sell it back to you. That Well, if you do a good job, if you're a great consumer then we can get you uh, loans in real time without having to go into the bank and meet anybody. We can just run a real-time credit score on you. You're being tracked, folks. This is uh, moving forward into what China's social score system is. China's not standalone. I'm going to do research into that and show you all the U.S. companies that are working with China, uh, like Consensus, to build the social score system. It's a test pilot, folks, for the rest of the world. That's what all this stuff is. That's what Indonesia is doing with the CBDC, the cross-border testing going on with Hong Kong and Thailand, China. This is all tested uh, for the world. This says here, a United Arab Emirates residents and businesses credit score expanded to include salary utility payments. Uh, Al... Ethod Credit Bureau expands scope of credit score coverage from 70% to 90%. And this is written in May 2022. It says right here, uh, more than 90% of individuals and businesses in the UAE will be covered by credit scores under a new calculation introduced by Al Ethod Credit Bureau. There are 13 million individuals and businesses registered under the UAE credit score entity. Earlier, the credit score extended to 70% of those registered and which will now be raised to 90%. Quote, 30% of the individuals and companies listed in the UECB credit registry were non-scorable due to lack of borrowing history, end quote, said Marwan Lutfi, CEO of Al-Ethad Credit Bureau. 
Quote, while credit information was always traditionally linked to banking obligations, individuals and companies unknowingly start building their credit history when making payments to non-banking institutions. Therefore, AECB improved its credit scoring models to use alternative data to compute credit scores for those with no banking credit history, end quote. See, so you're going to be pulled into the system whether you want to be in the system or not. This is how you take the people who do not want to be banked the so-called unbanked and move them over to bank because now you're part of the credit system whether you didn't want to be part of the credit system or not says the alternative additional data introduced in the credit score calculation uses monthly salary history check clearance history telecom monthly bill payment history and water and electricity monthly bill payment history to generate a credit score as a result a broader number of individuals and companies in the uae will automatically have a credit history so (laughs) whether you wanted it or not you're in it now folks and i'm doing some research on this to see how this is going to tie into moving them forward into social credit scores because now they're tracking all of the bills that you're paying all right and then finally here before we get into the uh, are we ready for a new world order i just want to show you this article at reuters.com and this is from october 2022 not even two months ago it says uae's central bank pilots c-bank digital currencies transactions it says dubai uh, October 26, the Central Bank of the United Arab Emirates, CBUAE, said on Wednesday it has completed the world's largest pilot of central bank digital currency transactions with other regulators, including the People's Bank of China's Digital Currency Institute. So you got the People's Bank of China, that's their central bank, working with the Central Bank of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates on uh, cross-border CBDCs. It says, quote, the project Embridge, that's what uh, is coming out of the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub, and we got to see the head of that, Cecilia Skingsley, in the International Monetary Fund panel discussion we reviewed over the last three episodes. It says, quote, the project Embridge demonstrated faster, cost-effective, and secure cross-border monetary settlements using central bank money, identified as a G20 economic priority, end quote, CBUAE said, adding it would be positive for regional and international trade as well as participating entities. The pilot was part of the project Embridge, which experiments with cross-border payments using a common platform based on distributed ledger technology, which central banks can use to issue and exchange CBDCs. Central banks around the world have been racing to develop CBDCs as they seek to provide an alternative to cryptocurrencies, but are grappling with technological complexities. Roughly 100 countries representing 95% of the world's GDP are using or looking into CBDCs, according to the Atlantic Council. We covered that. We showed you their uh, map. You can go there and you can take a look at that if you want to see all of the countries that are looking for it. Just look for Atlantic Council uh, CBDC map. It says, earlier this month, financial messaging system SWIFT laid out its blueprint for a global central bank digital currency network following an eight-month experiment on different technologies and currencies. CBUAE's six-week pilot project was conducted with the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, the Bank of Thailand, the Digital Currency Institute of the People's Bank of China, and the Bank for International Settlements. 
The pilot saw commercial banks in four jurisdictions use Enbridge for 160 payment and foreign exchange transactions, totaling more than 80 million dirhams. That's $21.78 million. Khalad Mohammed Balama, CBUAE's governor, said in the statement the project is part of CBUAE's plan to, quote, support UAE competitiveness, diversity, and growth of the financial sector in line with future economic trends, end quote. He added the central bank would continue to set up, quote, the right governance framework for interoperable CBDCs to deliver tangible benefits to UAE companies and consumers, end quote. All right, folks. So as you can see here, uh, I wanted to cover that because we're moving into the uh, discussion here on the new world order coming out of the world government summit which is a dubai organization affiliated with the world economic forum and so i think you'd want to know where dubai stands right in the world of technocracy before we listen to a panel discussion hosted by uh, dubai and the united arab emirates right so now we know who they are we know that the arabs with the robes are not primitive folks they are moving into the technocracy at warp speed at a faster pace than many others so now let me introduce you to the people we'll be hearing from on this panel titled are we ready for a new world order so we're going to start off with becky anderson we're just going to call her Becky. Becky Anderson, known as Becky, is a British journalist and the anchor of CNN International's flagship news and current affairs primetime news program, Connect the World. She previously hosted Business International. So we have Becky from CNN. She was born in England. She holds a bachelor's degree in economics and French from the University of Sussex and a master's degree in mass communication from Arizona State University. She worked for Bloomberg, CNBC, and joined CNN in 1999. All right, so that's who is hosting this panel discussion. Then we have Anwar Gargash. So we'll have to call him Anwar Gargash. And this gentleman, His Excellency, uh, Dr. Anwar Mohammed Gargash, is recognized as one of the main public voices of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates government. Although he first attracted international attention in 2006 when, as chairman of the National Elections Committee, he oversaw the UAE's first elections, he has long enjoyed a multifaceted prominence in his own nation. He served as professor of political science at UAE National University, achieving a public reputation as a respected intellectual and proponent of greater political participation for the UAE. In 2006, he was appointed Minister of State for Federal National Council Affairs, the FNC, not the Fox News Channel. That is the Federal National Council. Two years later, he was named Minister of State for Foreign Affairs. As chair of the National Elections Committee, Dr. Gargash created an information technology team that established the first e-voting system in the Middle East to carry out the initial election for seats in the FNC. E-voting. There we go. He loves technology. The election signaled that the UAE has joined other Gulf Arab countries in introducing the electoral process to its political system and garnered global respect for Dr. Gargash. 
Dr. Gargash continues to help shape the UAE's political and economic future by serving as chair of several government entities, including the National Committee to Combat Human Trafficking, yeah, right, and the boards of trustees of the Dubai School of Government and the AI Awas Culture Foundation. All right, so this is him. Yeah, he's all about uh, stopping human trafficking. I'm sure of that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, next up, we're going to have uh, Frederick Kemp, and this is over here at AtlanticCouncil.org. This guy was mentored by Henry Kissinger. So Frederick uh, Kemp, he is the president and the CEO of the Atlantic Council. Uh, Frederick Kemp is the president and chief executive order of the Atlantic Council, uh, the executive order, executive officer of the Atlantic Council. Under his leadership since 2007, the council has achieved historic industry-leading growth in size and influence, expanding its work through regional centers, spanning the globe, and through centers focused on topics ranging from international security and energy to global trade and next-generation mentorship. Before joining the council, Kemp was a prize-winning editor and reporter at the Wall Street Journal for more than 25 years. In New York, he served as assistant managing editor, international, and columnist. Prior to that, he was the longest-serving editor and associate publisher ever of the Wall Street Journal Europe, running the global Wall Street Journal's editorial operations in Europe and the Middle East. In 2002, the European Voice, a leading publication following EU affairs, selected Kemp as one of the 50 most influential Europeans as one of the four leading journalists in Europe. At the Wall Street Journal, he served as a roving correspondent based out of London, as a Vienna bureau chief covering Eastern Europe and East-West affairs, as chief diplomatic correspondent in Washington, D.C., and as the paper's first Berlin bureau chief following the unification of Germany and collapse of the Soviet Union. Ladies and gentlemen, more on Frederick Kemp when we get back from this short break. And then we're going to watch this panel discussion on the New World Order. Apparently, these folks, these high-ranking elitists, are, in fact, conspiracy theorists. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome back to Ping.tv slash gold, and you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. Folks, know thy enemy. There are many of them. They're surrounding us. They are everywhere. I mean, on this show, what have we covered in the last 113 episodes? Maybe 50 people, 60 people. There are so many, so many, tens of thousands of these folks, if not more. Goes on to say here on Frederick Kemp as a reporter, he covered events including the rise of solidarity in Poland and the growing Eastern European resistance to Soviet rule, the coming to power uh, Mikhail Gorbachev in Russia and his summit meetings with President Ronald Reagan, the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Lebanon in the 1980s, 
and the American invasion of Panama. He also covered the unification of Germany and the collapse of Soviet communism. He is the author of four books, the most recent, Berlin 1961, Kennedy, Khrushchev, and The Most Dangerous Place on Earth, was a New York Times bestseller and a national bestseller, published in 2011. It has subsequently been translated into 13 different languages. Kemp is a graduate of the University of Utah and has a master's degree from Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, where he was a member of the International Fellows Program in the School of International Affairs. He won the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism's Top Alumni Achievement Award and the University of Utah's Distinguished Alumnus Award. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, no big surprise there, and Gender Champions in Nuclear Policy. For his commitment to strengthening the transatlantic alliance, Kemp has been decorated by the presidents of Poland and Germany and by King Karl the 20th, or was that the 16th, <laughs> uh, Gustav of Sweden. So that's uh, Frederick Kemp for you. Uh, next up, ladies and gentlemen, on this panel on the New World Order, we have George Friedman. He is Hungarian, born in 1949. He's a Hungarian-born U.S. geopolitical forecaster, author, and strategist on international affairs. He is the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, an online publication that analyzes and forecasts the course of global events. Prior to founding Geopolitical Futures, he was chairman of its predecessor, uh, Straffer, the private intelligence publishing and consulting firm he founded in 1996. Okay, this is interesting. So, Frederick, we're going to call him Fred, and uh, George, we're going to call him George. Now, I'm just going to give you a little sidebar piece of intelligence here because I just find it to be interesting. I happen to know a lot of little stories. So, Straffer... Um, there's a gentleman from Straffer, and I don't have his name uh, in front of me, folks. But he was in the email chain, the famous email chain of Barack Obama ordering like $60,000 worth of hot dogs and pizza at the White House. A uh, high-ranking official from Straffer was actually on that email chain that came out from WikiLeaks. Straffer is also tied into old Alex Jones over there. No, they're not. I know nothing about Straffer. I'm just over here selling bone broth and penis pills. Uh, no, um, Alex Jones and many people working at InfoWars that actually were tied to Straffer. Interesting. Just a side note there. I find it to be funny. So this guy is the chairman of its predecessor, Stratford, the private intelligence publishing and consulting firm he founded in 1996. One day we'll cover Stratford. Uh, it says Friedman was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1949 to Jewish parents who survived the Holocaust. His family fled Hungary when he was a child to escape the communist regime as refugees, selling first in a, uh, settling first in a camp for displaced persons in Austria and then emigrating to the United States. Friedman describes his family's story as a very classic story of refugees making a new life in America. He grew up in New York City. Friedman received a B.A. at the City College of New York, where he majored in political science and a Ph.D. in government and Cornell University. Let's take a look at his career. I, I mean, this is going to be interesting because the guy uh, has a history here of fleeing the fascists and the communists. And yet we'll see on this panel if he is advocating for a new world order, <laughs> which would be uh, quite interesting.
It says, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, he studied potential uh, for a Japan-U.S. conflict and co-authored with his wife the coming war with Japan in 1991. In 1996, Friedman founded Straffer, a private intelligence and forecasting company, and served as the company's CEO and chief intelligence officer. Straffer's head office is in Austin, Texas. He resigned from Straffer in May 2015. That year, he co-founded Geopolitical Futures. So uh, Austin is where you've got Joe Rogan and Alex Jones and the rest of them. It says, Friedman's reputation as a forecaster of geopolitical events led the New York Times Magazine to comment in a profile, quote, there is a temptation when you are around George Friedman to treat him like a magic eight ball, end quote. In the next decade, Friedman argues how the U.S. administrations of the 2010s will need to create regional power balances, some of which have been uh, disturbed. Friedman conceptualizes successful U.S. management of world affairs not by directly enforcing countries, but by creating competing relationships, which offset one another in the world's different regions. For example, in the past, Iraq balanced Iran, and currently Japan balances China. Friedman asserts that uh, Friedman asserts this is the decade where the U.S. as a power must mature to manage its power and balance as an unintended empire and republic. Friedman's latest book was released in 2020 by Doubleday. While originally scheduled to be released in 2018, it was delayed six times before being released in 2020. The working title was The New American Century, Crisis, Endurance, and the Future of the United States, but has subsequently been changed to The Storm Before the Calm, America's Discord, The Coming Crisis, of the 2020s and the triumph beyond all right so he lives in austin texas and then finally on this panel here we have pippa mal uh, malmgren and so we will just call her uh pippa folks and so uh philippa pippa malgram is an american technology entrepreneur and economist she served as special assistant to the president of the united states george w bush it's good to be here <laughs> for economic policy on the national economic council and is a former member of the u.s president's working group on financial markets and the president's working group on corporate governance she wrote the dissertation, quote, economic statecraft, end quote, United States anti-dumping and countervailing duty policy to obtain her Ph.D. in international relations from the London School of Economics in 1991 and was the commencement speaker at LSE in 2013 and 2016. Ms. Malgram is, quote, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as they all are, uh, the Institute for International Strategic Security, and the Royal Geographical Society, end quote. She is a senior partner to the Monaco Foundry and Avonhurst and senior associate fellow of Russi. Dr. Malgram is the author of Geopolitics for Investors, Signals, How Everyday Signs Help Us Navigate the World's Turbulent Economy, the Leadership Lab winner of the 2019 Business Book of the Year Award, and the Infinite Leader winner of the 2021 International Press Award for the Best Book on Leadership. She has been credited with the first usage of the term uh, shrinkflation. Her father is Harold Malgram, who has served as a senior aide to U.S. Presidents John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Gerald Ford. So her father was one of those that spans across political parties, folks. So this is your panel here. This is your panel at the World Government Summit 
panel discussion with the title, Are We Ready for a New World Order? And we will be reviewing that, ladies and gentlemen. So now you know all the characters. We have Becky hosting the event. We have uh, Awar, or sorry, Anwar. We have Fred. We have George. And we have Pippa, ladies and gentlemen. So let's jump into this right now. We're going to start this off. This is fairly short. And I think that part of this is missing. But I went through the whole internet, ladies and gentlemen. I scoured the entire internet for weeks and months. And uh, I could not find a longer version of this. It's uh, 27 minutes. And it seems like when Becky from CNN, the moderator, asked the first question, it seems like there's stuff missing before. But this is the official video released by World Government Summit on their website and their YouTube account. You cannot find another version of this. So I did not edit this. As you know, I like to show videos in full here because one, I want you to understand we are not editing this stuff out of context. I'm not cherry picking certain parts of a speech and then trying to twist and turn them into my own narrative. I'm showing you the entire uh, panel discussions and white papers and articles and I try to break those down and analyze them from our perspective uh, based on all the other research we've done in the tying the dots together and then creating and painting a larger picture for you so when i find these videos or people send me clips i go look for the full video and i try to get the original source and then i analyze the entire video for you because there's also so many nuggets so many breadcrumbs embedded in this that people miss i've seen people do a great podcast they pull one quote out of a world economic forum panel discussion on something creepy like uh I don't know, the Nokia CEO talking about putting cell phone devices under people's skin. But then when you watch the other 49 minutes, there's a hundred things that are scarier than that. And so I don't like to do that, folks. I like to show you everything, everything that comes out of these speeches. So we're going to review this momentarily. This is the World Government Summit. And the name of this panel discussion is, Are We Ready for a New World Order? And that's a question you need to think about over the break, folks. Are you ready for a new world order? Have we already had a world order? Are we under a world order? Is this a worldwide technocracy? Are we underneath a worldwide technate? Those are all the questions you should ask yourself before you listen to this panel of international criminals. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. Listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, here we are. The World Government Summit. And this is from June. This is from June uh, 2022. So just about six months ago, ladies and gentlemen. So let's get this started. It's going to kick off with Becky from CNN. Your Excellency, are you 
ready for a new world order? Are you ready for a new world order? That's it, folks. They just straight up asked the question. No messing around, folks. No messing around. Let's continue. I think, uh, Becky, the, pro the main problem is uh, if you think of the technology, the technology is 21st century, 26th, uh, 2nd century technology. What is happening in AI? what is happening uh, everywhere really that will really transform and is transforming our lives and also transforming uh, international relations. But I think the, uh, the frame of thinking is still 19th century. I think this is one of the problems that we have in the international system. Okay, it's still a 19th century. We're always told these guys are back in the 16th century, but he's saying we have a 19th century uh, school of thought, but 21st uh, century technology. Now, I always find it to be interesting when you listen to people talk, uh, and I've not watched a lot of this this guy, for instance, but whether it's Elon Musk or Peter Thiel or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or any of these folks out there pushing artificial intelligence, technocracy, transhumanism, they always act like it's just happening as if they're not the guys that are actually running it, making it happen. So they'll sit there, oh, with artificial intelligence, uh, the world is uh, changing and uh, people have to change. Well, you're the guys building it. See, that's that's the part that's just hilarious. All right, let's continue. Uh, if you look, we are still, it's still about nationalism. It's still about state sovereignty. It's still about use of force or non-use of source of force. And I think this is one of the major, major issues as uh, we try to uh, to bridge really what is mentally, uh, you know, governing international relations with the 19th century mode of thinking, but at the same time with technology fast, fast ahead of us on the curve. That I think will be a major problem. Okay, so you can see there, uh, this is um, Anwar speaking big wig in the united arab emirates right and so what he's saying there is we have all these great technologies but we have a 19th century school of thought and so this is something we're going to have to fix if we want to move forward into a technological new world order let's continue very interesting perspective fred kemp your assessment um uh, so my mentor on issues of world order is Henry Kissinger, so I'll try to channel him, and forgive me, Dr. Kissinger. Uh, Henry Kissinger, right? You guys know Henry Kissinger. In the 1970s, Henry Kissinger wrote a report, including uh, in part about depopulation, or reducing uh, overpopulation. Henry Kissinger. He, um, another one of these guys, real weird, uh, comes out of the you know, uh, Jewish immigrants, but professes some real Nazi-sounding stuff. And so now this guy, Fred Kemp, who we just read his bio, he's from the Atlantic Council, long history with the Wall Street Journal, reported on everything since the birth of Christ. And so Fred Kemp now is saying that Henry Kissinger was basically his mentor on all things world order. Let's continue. But his answer would be, what do you mean no new world order? We have not had a world order yet. 
<laughs> what we've had is we've had a Western order that was imposed on the world. And so the first world order in modern times, or somewhat modern times, was four centuries ago with the, with the Treaty of Westphalia, ending a century of conflict, the Thirty Years' War. And it wasn't uh, a great moral thrust, it was just recognizing the world as it was. If you look at what we're trying to create right now, uh, where I would say at an inflection point in history, as important as the end of World War I, where we got the effort at world order tragically wrong, uh, we ended up with millions of dead, the Holocaust, in World War II. After World War II, we got more right than wrong with the creation of the International Liberal Order and the United Nations and the Bretton Woods uh, uh, system and the European Coal and Steel Community, NATO, etc. And then... See, see that? See what he just said? Right, so they got the world order wrong at the end of World War One. It leads us into World War Two, and then we started to get things right after World War Two by creating all these international bodies. The central banking system became more organized under Bretton Woods. So he's now talking about how uh, the world order uh, grew out of World War Two. We've covered that here through our research and our opinion, but. He's openly talking about it here. And th this is a high-ranking elitist, folks. All right, let's continue. Soviet Union fell. And then the Cold War, uh, we thought it was the end of history. And we thought that everyone could fit into this system that had been created. And it worked for a while. Uh, but not everybody came into it. Uh, but China grew. China uh, certainly uh, took uh, full advantage of being part of the global system. Uh, Russia did not. Russia became more of an outlier. And I think where we are now, and this gets to your question, Becky, of a new world order, is uh, it can go in two directions with the war in Ukraine now being a decisive element. Either the jungle is back, as the historian Bob Kagan talks, and, and that we can go into a darker era, um, or we could go into an era because of the advances of science, advances of technology, that could be one of the most prosperous, promising, progressive, enlightened, moderate, modern eras that we've ever faced. Okay, so he's explaining there uh, in those taglines he used, technocracy. This is the selling point of the technocratic movement going all the way back to the uh, 1920s. All right, and this is this great progressive era. Progressivism, folks, the last progressive era brought us eugenics, forced sterilization of people, forced breeding, trying to weed out bloodlines, Oh, yeah, some really dangerous stuff. We covered that here at the Dustin Gold Standard. So he's uh, now going to say, oh, this technology, artificial intelligence, you know, add transhumanism in there. It's all in there. Uh, even Dubai and the United Arab Emirates are bragging about their ability to do uh, DNA splicing and genome editing and everything. That's all transhumanism. So he's saying this, this new era upon us could bring great things. It could be a great progressive enlightened era with all the technology and the artificial intelligence. Or we could end up because of the Russia-Ukraine war, driving ourselves back into a dark age, uh, back into the jungle, which is a complete and total lie because you have Putin out there calling for a central bank digital currency. You have Ukraine launching their test pilot for a central bank digital currency. All these countries are on board. They're all advancing with the smart city technology and CBDC at the same exact time. So to believe that they're actually enemies is just, uh, it's fraudulent. All right, let's continue. And I think we're in a moment where that's being decided. And I think the importance of the Ukraine issue 
is that it's a fulcrum for this. And how the world manages this and comes out of this is going to have far-reaching consequences that go beyond Ukraine. Thank you. Pippa, the US President, and I steal a line from the Washington <coughs> Post here, their national uh, columnist who is um, a terrific uh, writer. The US President has framed the tension of this moment as pitting democracy versus autocracy. That is a controversial position uh, coming as it does um, from the US president. Do you agree? And how does, how does that framing fit into our wider discussion today? Okay, so that's Becky from CNN, and she's kicking it over to uh, Pippa. All right, let's continue. Well, I think the word framing is correct. Mm. Uh, I wrote a piece in late October saying we're already in World War III. We are already in conflict that extends so far beyond Ukraine, actually, mm. even within the context of Western Europe. But we've clearly been pretty much at war in space. Uh, below the surface of the oceans, submarine warfare between superpowers. Uh, I wouldn't even say that this has been happening for at least four years, and it's spilled over into public view on the ground. Uh, but we don't frame it that way. Uh, also, this idea that it's one kind of uh, political organization system versus another, but really it looks to me like old-fashioned superpower conflicts um, where I'm very optimistic, and I agree with you about how to frame the future, what I see as someone involved in technology, someone involved with entrepreneurs and advising governments, I see a future where we genuinely have ubiquity and not scarcity. I see a future where the internet is available for free for everyone in the most remote locations on the planet. For Okay, and then pause that for a second, because we, we let her go on there on, uh, you know, underwater battles and space battles and all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't get into a lot of that, because I, I just truly don't believe there's actual conflict between countries that are all operating under the central bank system. I believe uh, these wars are designed for particular purposes, and so we can go down 100 rabbit holes with what she just said, and I don't want to get into that right now but now she's going to talk about from the perspective of technology right that we're going to have this system of abundance where everyone's going to have the free internet the internet they need you connected to whether through your smartphone or your iWatch or your brain chip or your hand chip whatever it may be they have to have you connected to it to be part of the full-blown technocratic physical world prison planet matrix system that they're actually building and so they're going to sell you on the idea of this system of abundance versus scarcity which was the selling point if you remember all the shows that we covered of technocracy growing out of the 1920s the idea was that if you let the scientists the engineers and the technologists run the entire system as if it's a giant machine we can put people to work very minimally, like 10 to 20 hours a week, helping run the machines, and you're going to get all the goods that the government deems uh, necessary that you be allowed to have. And this is the same exact system, folks. That was the blueprint. So they're going to sell you on the system of abundance, 
versus scarcity, which the technocrats originally called the price system, which was a fight against capitalism, free markets in its rawest form. They were against that. Now, the system we see today, I don't believe, is free market, and it's not capitalism in its rawest form. It's a crony corporatism that we're looking at. But they're going to sell you on this, that if you let us run everything, if you operate in CBDC, if you allow us to control the supply chains, if you allow us to control the natural resources through the climate change hustle, if you allow us, the scientists, the engineers, the technologists, the bankers, to control everything, then we will make sure you're fed. And you know damn well that these folks, all right, whether it be Becky from CNN Anwar from Dubai, Fred from Atlantic Council, uh, George uh, and Pippa, uh, George from Straffer and Pippa, who's advised uh, George W. Bush and her father was embedded into multiple uh, presidencies. Uh, they don't love you folks. So when they're trying to sell you this, this is an illusion here. It's an illusion. They're selling you something beautiful. They're selling you a, t- a utopia as socialists, as communists, as Marxists, as fascists have always done throughout history. They sell the idea of the utopia and they're going to bring you into a system of complete and total hell. That's the idea, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to go into uh, hell right now because when I'm not talking to you folks, I'm very depressed. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Payne.tv slash gold. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's get back to it. I want to wrap this up today, if possible. This is the World Government Summit here. Are we ready for a new world order? Let's pick it back up with these folks. And that means the location of power is going to shift. And I see, as a person in financial markets, decentralization of power structures everywhere, in finance, in political power. Um, And in fact, this conflict that we're in right now may be the beginning of that shift. I certainly see many people from the industrialized world looking very actively to move to places that they used to consider emerging markets, mm-hmm. uh, to build businesses there, to expand there. So uh, I also think to finish. The- okay, I, I just have to interject there because that's total nonsense. There is no decentralization of governmental powers or decentralization of financial systems. It is becoming more centralized. The whole idea of a new world order, a world government, it's called World Government Summit, that's the name of this, is about concentrating power, centralizing power, further centralizing power, monopolizing power. All right. When you bring in CBDCs that are run from the central banks out of the World Bank, out of the BIS, out of the IMF, that is anything but decentralized. It is more centralized when the transaction between you and me, when the middleman between that 
transaction is the central bank that's centralized okay not that our system today is is much better but this is concentration of power and so there are no government officials out there that are looking to decentralize power and to give you back power and this whole idea of a world government and no borders allows for the creation of a one world governmental system so if that is run out of Brussels or that is run from Mars overseeing the whole pl- planet, that is centralizing. If they were truly about decentralized power, they would start with the United States and they would get rid of Washington, D.C. They would just totally get rid of it and they would return all the power to the states. And if the states wanted to decentralize power, they would close down the state government and they would return all power to the counties and to the local governments. All right, so that's what you would do if you really wanted to decentralize everything. You would get rid of the giant governmental structures that oversee large populations of people across large swaths of land. That's what you would actually do if you were looking to decentralize power. I just had it back and forth with somebody on Twitter over at, um, at Hackable Animal, one of my accounts. And they were talking about uh, technology getting into the wrong hands. And, you know, uh, they were talking about deplatforming and saying nobody was talking about deplatforming six, seven years ago. And I said, well, no one was talking about deplatforming in 1994 because it was 1995 when the Internet was introduced into homes here in the United States. Before the Internet, there was no such thing as deplatforming. There was also no such thing as a lot of the other problems or any of the problems the Internet have brought us. And so they said, you can't get rid of the Internet. I said, listen, if you got rid of the Internet... Uh, a lot of things would be fixed. And this person said to me, well, you will never, whether it's online or offline, get everyone to agree on one world view. I said, no, if you got rid of the internet and our footprint shrank back down and we were focused on our local communities, our worldview would not matter because I would not be sitting here in the morning while I'm uh, sitting on the toilet going to the bathroom flipping through my Facebook feed and looking at a story about a man in Uganda who got stung by a killer bee and how his family needs money to uh, pay for his medicine. It wouldn't matter to me. You know who would be worried about that? His neighbors in his village in Uganda. I would be focused on my life and my neighbors. So getting rid of the internet would actually decentralize everything because we'd go back to operating within our small communities they created this system of centralized power and globalization and they're continuing now to try to consolidate that power that control all right let's continue this idea that autocracies have an advantage over democracies i will fight that tooth and nail i don't think it is correct and i think our our view that just because for example china had a more autocratic approach made them more successful is unproven by time. And we are going to find the places that allow the entrepreneurial spirit to thrive the most and give the greatest political latitude are the ones that are going to grow the best. Now, now what does she mean by entrepreneurial spirit? Because I flipped through her resume, folks, and the companies she's talking about are the technology companies, Silicon Valley companies, that are working with the government, with the state, operating under government grants government contracts government money government partnerships so entrepreneurship she's full of it she's talking about the extension of the state operating under the so-called private sector the puppets the elon musk the peter thiels of the world let's continue thank you pippa 
George, your assessment, briefly. I think human beings live their lives in a storm, and nations live their lives in a storm. And we are gifted with nostalgia. We remember times that never were and long for them. Okay, so now this is George here coming out of Stratford. Now that opening statement, the more I've researched, uh, really since I started the Dust and Gold Standard, uh, but going back a few years, I would agree with that statement. We do remember times that never were. That was the whole idea of MAGA, make America great again. And I've asked Maria Albanese and others what that actually means. What time were we going back to? You know, what, what point in history was America so great, your lives so perfect? Uh, because we haven't lived under the so-called Constitution since the day the Constitution was signed. So what is this vision in our heads of uh, this time that never was? You know, mom and apple pie. And so that's why I'm focused on here at the Dust and Gold Standard, the hidden history of the United States and the world, showing you what's really happened, what's really going on, where we're really headed. Because so many people I know, especially conservatives, they walk around with this idea in their head that America was great yesterday and now today it's not. When in fact, they're unaware that we were chemically castrating, sterilizing people, locking them in cages in the late 1800s, early 1900s. They're unaware that the Federal Reserve System, the way we elect our senators, all came into place in 1913, totally changing the way our country works. So they have this idea that if we just went back five years ago, everything would be fine. Or when Donald Trump was in, America was great. Why? Because gas prices were a little bit lower, because your 401k was a little bit higher. That made America great and perfect. Everything was fantastic. The technocrats weren't working on what they're doing. The setup to COVID land, the high school theater production wasn't in the works under Trump. You know, that's what I'm saying, folks. This is why part of why I do the show and why I'm building this library of content for my son, Willie, is because I'm going to raise him to understand the system we actually live in, the world we actually live in, not this fictitious land of unicorns and cotton candy that many people think we once lived in. All right, let's continue. So we are now in a normal condition of humans. We love those we love. We hate those we hate. We fight. We make up. And human beings are this thing. But it is the most interesting thing that we remember things that we never ever were. We remember a time where this tension of love and hate didn't exist. We remember a time that if we could only get back to, all would be well. And sometimes we imagine that if I have uh, the internet, that will take me home. But there is no going home, we are at home. And we have to be at peace with where we are. And there is no time that has ever been at peace with the chaos that it was surrounded by. And that's the tragedy of the human condition and its greatness. All right, so I will not argue with that, uh, of that opening statement right now. We'll see what else George, the founder of Stratford, has to say. But, um, I, and I don't agree, I will say I do not agree with we have to be at peace with where we are today. But where he says is what we're living in today is what we're living in. I do agree with that. But, but my philosophy is that if you want to change it, even down to your personal life, for yourself and for your family. If you want to change the situation you're in, you can do that, but you first have to understand what you're actually living in, what you're living under, how we got here. 
what's actually happening right now, what the plans are for the future, and then you can start to make these realistic changes in your life based on goals you come up with and solutions to get from where you are to those goals. And so I do agree with him when he says we are here and we have this vision in our head that if we can only go back to yesterday, everything would be perfect. And that's not true. All right, let's continue, folks. Right. Thank you. Um, Your positions are quite clear. Dr. Anwar Gargash, then, let's just start with you. If, If we are looking at a new world order, a new world order that, that is, as Pippa describes it, decentralized. If we are looking at a new world that is not a, a sing, single power based, as it were, and a world that is layered by these, what feel like very new global issues of climate change, of cybersecurity, as you suggest, of technology and the speed of that, what does that mean for this region? Because the perspective that we discuss world order through, as Fred has rightly pointed out, has been a Western perspective. My sense is that we must stop doing that. So what, what is the impact well, on I this think, region? I think to start with, uh, Becky, the region has to catch up. Mm. I mean, the region is really uh, behind various other regions uh, in, uh, in the world. And I think it's by uh, prioritizing its own uh, politics and prioritizing its own polarizing wars and and confrontations. The region really, I think, number one, uh, as the world is becoming multipolar, and I believe it is, and I agree also with the idea that this multipolarity is moving from economic to uh, from political to economic to what I would call even currency multipolarity as we move forward. I think the region is uh, really going through two phases. Number one is witnessing the uh, the sort of uh, upper structure changing, but it has to catch up, and it has to catch up by emphasizing, in my opinion. Uh, non-political issues. Some of them are global issues, the ones you Mm. mentioned, and certainly COVID is a clear test of what we should be concentrating on food security and cyber uh, capability and uh, uh, climate change and others. But more fundamentally, I think the region lags behind in terms of uh, multi, uh, you know, multi uh, projects of, of integration, economic integration, etc. I mean, if you just look at the... Okay, so e- even here, you have uh, Anwar up here. I mean, bumper sticker slogan after bumper sticker slogan. You know, climate change, uh, technology, interoperability of finance. You know, so they're, they're, this is all the same stuff. So you have the leaders of the world, the elites, the ruling class getting together. And you can see they're all on the same page with moving forward all of these policy initiatives, utilizing the same taglines and utilizing the same grift industries like the climate change hustle. And then when they get into financial, they're talking economics. They're actually talking about central bank digital currency. That's what that means. And so he's sitting here talking about how the region they're in there, Dubai, that area has to kind of catch up to the rest of the world. But trust me, folks, this is 
all moving towards more centralization, not decentralization. It's a total, complete flim-flam operation. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. Welcome to the New World Order. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold, and we are reviewing the World Government Summit discussion on are we ready for a new world order, folks? And that's the question. Are you ready for a new world order? Let's continue. Let's pick back up where we were. I think we're ending with Anwar, who is from the United Arab Emirates government. GCC, for example. The GCC has never really been a big success when it comes to uh, political direction. It has had varied views there. But it's been a huge success, really, in creating what I would call a common market. So I think the region needs to catch up before it actually becomes a major player. Otherwise, it will be very much subservient to this multipolarity that we're talking about. And I want to come back to you um, for, for a sense from you, which I think would be extremely useful for this audience, as to what is going on behind the scenes here. When I say behind the scenes, it's very visible um, that there is enormous change in this region. Witness the, uh, the meeting in the Negev Desert uh, the summit um, attended by the uh, foreign minister here, um, His Highness Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed, four Arab foreign ministers meeting in the Negev Desert with the uh, Israelis. I mean, if you told me that that was going to happen three years ago, two years ago, even you know, a couple of weeks ago, I think I'd have still been surprised by that. So I do want to get, because I think that's very important, we get, you, we get your perspective as to what is going on behind the scenes. But thank you, Fred. Um, this sense that you, and you certainly see this here, that we are in a pivot with foreign policy to a policy that, that fundamentally and clearly serves economic needs, geopolitics to geoeconomics, as, as, as Dr. Amwar has suggested, I think is certainly an extremely important driver of what is going on today. But your sense, I want to get a sense of if we, you know, where we're at and the impact that this will have on global policy going forward and how this world is run. The, the impact of the economics of it all. Mm. Uh, well, first of all, let's take a look at what makes up world orders. Uh, world orders are that uh, a group of countries across the world agree to a set of rules, and they agree to play by them. The second is there's a balance of power uh, so that no power feels that uh, it can subjugate a neighbor. But then the third part of this is uh, a, a, a consensus that everyone accepts this. It's, it's almost too utopian to, to, to come about. And so what's emerging right now, which I think is a danger, is uh, a Chinese-centered order and a US-centered order, and that we're breaking down again. Mm. And that's not a healthy outcome. It's not the outcome we want. Uh, but that gets to the economics, and that's what I wanted to touch on, because the economics are that China, I think in 2016-17, uh, uh, invested $53 billion in the United States. 
But last year, $1 billion. So there's already a decoupling. There's already a breaking down. And the question is, how does this play out right now? And so I think you're going to see, in an economic sense, you're going to see these two worlds. But it's not going to be that neat. I think you're going to see the evolution of regional organizations. And the regional, because it's so hard to create a world order, I think you're going to see regional orders spring up. And then you have links between regional orders. But they will be very much guided by economic interests, social interests, and also uh, security interests. You see things like the Quad, like the Abraham Accords, uh, so ad hoc, not, not inflexible alliances, and, and that seems to me what's emerging at the moment. Okay, so uh, this, okay, so he's talking um, about the world, about geopolitics and the way that these wonks would talk about it over the last 10, 15, 20, 50 years, you know, going all the way back to World War II. But see, what's happening, folks, I'm telling you, what we've discovered here, this is why I wanted to play this panel discussion for you, what we've discovered is happening through the technology, through the technologists, through the Amazon Web Services, the consensuses, the Oracles, the Microsofts, the IBMs, they're out there and they're working with all of these different countries. Now, if you're a country, let's say you're China, and you were in competition, as uh, Fred would say, with the United States, would you let an American company like Amazon Web Services, uh, located over here doing contracts with the United States government, right, to the tune of tens of billions of dollars housing CIA and NSA data, would you allow them to come into your country, China, and build cloud services for you? Whose loyalty does Amazon Web Services have? Are they loyal to the United States government? Are they loyal to the Chinese government? They're working in Russia. Are they loyal to the Russian government? Are they loyal to the German government? And so when you see all these international technology companies working with these various countries that are all supposed to be uh, enemies and are all supposed to be up against each other, it's just not true. It's a facade that's being created while the technocracy is actually being built and the infrastructure is being built. Would you see the cooperation on central bank digital currencies and cross-border payments? Well, that's all being orchestrated through the central banks. The central banks are all members of the World Bank and the IMF and all answer to the Bank for International Settlements. So you can't really have any meaningful competition between these countries when at the end of the day, they're actually all integrated through the technology and through the policies and these international governmental bodies and the financial banking system. See, they're all intertwined. So there isn't really any competition. The technate is being built. The uh, worldwide technocracy is being built, as you see in Ukraine, you see in Russia, you see in Israel, you see in Palestine. It's all being built at the same time. You have all the same players behind it. So he is not being sincere with what he's actually saying there. Let's continue. Should, should countries, governments be forced to make a choice, to take a side at this point, Pippa? I mean, certainly, again, this is a big narrative here. You know, this is two, you know, this is, the, this is a struggle by two great powers. I use the term great loosely to a certain extent, but, you know, two great powers. And, and, and others being forced to take a choice. I think this speaks to this kind of emergence of these regional powers and the emergence of the middle powers here. Because we're hearing, quite frankly, don't force us into a corner here. Are they right? 
Well, it may be a bit late for that. Uh, I remember talking to an Australian diplomat at one point about this break between the US and China and said, you know, both sides are going to say, whose team are you on? Mm. And he said, our job is to make sure the question never arises. But the question has arisen. And so I think we have to go deeper. And it's not about the US versus China. It's about what underpins a world order is always the financial system. Aha, mm. uh, uh -huh, there we go. Pause for a second. So this is Dr. Pippa over here. And she said, uh, forget about the competition between China and the United States, because what underpins this is going to be the financial system. Let's see what she has to say about this. It's very privileged. My father was an advisor to Nixon when they came off the gold standard in 71. And so I was brought up with a kind of inside view of how very important the financial structure is to absolutely everything else. And what we're seeing in the world today, I think, is we are on the brink of a dramatic change where we are about to, and I'll say this boldly, we're about to abandon the traditional system of money and accounting and introduce a new one. And okay, so there you go, right? So she's talking about her father advising Richard Nixon as we're coming off the gold standard. Not here, folks. This is the Dustin gold standard. But... Uh, no, it, it's it's very interesting because she's going to talk about, obviously, central bank digital currencies. Uh, we're moving from one financial system to another financial system. And Peter Thiel, the technocratic transhumanist government oligarch, huge government contractor, had actually said that at the beginning of COVID Land, the high school theater production, that they could use COVID as a chance to usher in the new financial system and push out the old financial system. So let's see what Dr. Pippa has to say. The new one, the new accounting is what we call blockchain. It means digital. It means having a almost perfect record of every single transaction that happens in the economy, which will give us far greater clarity over what's going on. It also raises huge dangers in terms of the balance of power between states and citizens. In my opinion, we're going to need a digital constitution of human rights if we're going Oh, okay, okay. Blockchain is going to change everything. CBDC is going to change everything. But now, folks, the problem that we, the elites, the social engineering class, the prison planet wardens, the economic terrorists, the central bank mafia bosses, we are going to need to govern a governing body that governs the overseeing of the new governance and financial structure. We're going to need a digital constitution of rights for the citizens that we're about to enslave and strap with a chain to a block. Every transaction will be tracked. Every purchase will be analyzed. Every bit of data will be traded on the market. But don't worry, because we're going to protect you with a digital constitution of your rights. They don't respect your human rights. In the United States, they don't respect your constitutional rights. But don't worry, we're going to have a new digital rights constitution. Give me a break, folks. You can see it. It's all right. Right here, ladies and gentlemen, all right out in the open. Let's continue. We have digital money, uh, but also this new money will be sovereign in nature. Most people think that digital money is crypto and private, but what I see are superpowers introducing digital currency. The Chinese were the first. The U.S. is on the brink, I think, of moving in the same direction. The Europeans have committed to that as well. And the question is, will that new system of digital money and digital accounting 
accommodate the competing needs of the citizens of all these locations so that every human being has a chance to have a better life. Okay, so you've got the United States, she just admits, and this lady's high level, folks. She's a goofball, but she's a high level advisor, goes in and out of different presidential regimes. Um, she's big into finance and entrepreneurship and technology and Silicon Valley. And she just said, China moved forward with CBDC. We already know that. The United States is on the brink of doing it as well. All right, so don't take my word for it. Take the word of her. You might hate her. You might dislike her. You might think she's a power-hungry scumbag, uh, as I do and many others do. But she knows what's going on, folks, and she's sitting there at the World Government Summit on the panel discussion on are we ready for a new world order telling you the United States is getting ready to move into central bank digital currency. Let's continue. Because that's the only measure of whether a world order really serves. George, what do you believe the biggest shift will be? Well, there's always a major shift in great powers. Uh, the world in 1945 was defined in a certain way. In 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm. Maastricht was written. The Japanese economic miracle turned out to be <coughs> a miracle, and, and so on. So in 1991, we had a change. We are now having another change. The first, we are discovering that Russia is not a great power. Economically, it lags behind South Korea. Militarily, it has shown itself not to be significant. It is a military. It is a nuclear power. We've also seen that in China, although it has had a magnificent run for 40 years, has now entered a period of economic dysfunction. Its uh, economy, its, uh, its financial system and such has to be restructured. And these restructurings aren't easy and they are never come without political problems. So uh, it's a great power, but how it plays out the game is, mm. is another question. But one thing we've discovered, I think, in this crisis, the enormous power of the United States, which has been forgotten. But the way the Americans were able to use the dollar as a weapon to put the Russians on defensive, the manner in which the United States was able to rally uh, NATO uh, to this common cause. I mean, when we look at the way we thought of the world a while ago, it's different now. No, and that I, I, and you're making a very good point. I guess the, that begs the question, how long does that last? Oh, not very long. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it also begs the question, so not, go on, go on. When 1945 went to 1999, mm. 1999 went to this point, if this is a transitory point, and every 20, 30, 40 years, we have a transition in the world. And that should not be unexpected. We are a dynamic people, and we will change the way we live, and the system will change, and we will have to align ourselves with it. You made a point about, you know, the, the U.S., and I'm not sure if you actually use the term, forgive me if I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but has weaponized the dollar to a certain extent. Um, or has used the dollar, you've seen the power of the dollar at a time when, as Pippa rightly points out, should we be looking at... You know, the sort of uh, the, the, uh, the fiat that we have used over the past X amount of years. Is anything like uh, useful going forward or is that redundant? And if it is as yet still not redundant, is it the dollar or is it the Chinese currency? And we have seen the efforts or the noises made by the uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia recently just to suggest that it doesn't have to be the US currency that is the uh, currency of repute 
going forward. You're all making some absolutely fascinating points. I think, you know, with, with 15 minutes left of what is a ridiculously short panel, as far as I'm concerned, I think it's important um, to get a sense from you all as to how you believe governments will navigate the new global dynamics to shape a better future, which brings me very neatly to, if you will, Dr. Anwar, just, just explain, if you can, you know, what is going on in this region at present? Oh, okay, folks, let's pause right there. I let that run long. I didn't want to interject. There was nothing I really had to say. Uh, because when you're listening to uh, George speak from Straffer, he makes actually quite a bit, bit of sense. And so I wanted to let him uh, answer. Obviously, he's not talking about technology and the financial system and what the other ones are talking about. He's talking about, you know, geopolitics. So I want to let that run. When we get back from this break, ladies and gentlemen, there's just seven minutes left. We're going to wrap this up. I want to end it today so I could move on to some other subjects. Hopefully tomorrow we'll have Dan Golvach on to talk about the spirituality that goes behind these power-hungry international criminal hackers, pirates, and thieves. And so we'll talk about that. When I get back, let me finish up with this panel discussion because a lot of people were mentioning this, sending it to me, wanting me to cover it. So we're covering it. And then uh, that'll be the end of panel discussions uh, for some time. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dust to Gold with the Dust to Gold Standard right here on Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dust and Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv all right ladies and gentlemen welcome back to pain.tv slash gold my name is dustin gold and you are listening to the dustin gold standard all right folks we've got about six minutes left in this world government summit are we ready for a new world order conversation and so we're going to let this play out ladies and gentlemen i want to finish this up uh, always interesting when world elites these big advisors to various governments get together on the stage and talk about whether we are moving forward into a new world order so i figured we had to cover this and then tomorrow i'm deciding if dan Golbach doesn't come on which direction i'm going to go uh, because I am setting the stage for Wide Awake Jim to come back next week and to break into his Bank for International Settlements tre treasure trove of documents. All right, let's continue with this, folks. Well, I think, uh, first of all, we've gone through a very difficult uh, and torturing decade. Mm. And I think, uh, from the U.S. perspective, we need to turn the page uh, and start a new page. And that uh, new page is basically reaching out to uh, various uh, friends, of course, but adversaries also. And to uh, make sure that, you, you know, we rebuild these bridges. We, we're not gonna agree uh, with everything they want to do, etc. And the Middle East really, uh, going back to the, to the Najaf uh, summit, the Middle East is not really only about Iran, and the Middle East is not only uh, about Israel. Because you could be confused by that. Yeah, you could be sure. confused. You could be confused, and I think our whole...
Well, yeah, we obviously see the Middle East is not just about a war between Iran and Israel. The Middle East is building up an entire smart city prison planet system around everybody, as we know. And we'll go deeper into that as well, because a lot of folks over here don't realize that this technology is being uh, rolled out all around the world. Let's continue. Uh, Intention is to uh, find a way of functionally working with Iran. Our whole uh, intention is to make sure that there is an agenda of stability and prosperity in the region that includes Iran and and others. But I think the other also important element that you should not, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, be blindsided by energy is coming back as a major component of many of uh, the Middle East and indeed uh, world discussion. What people thought uh, was the death of uh, carbon fossil energy, fuels. of fossil fuels, etc., is, uh, I think, a little bit premature. And I think you're seeing that also coming out uh, in many of these discussions. I want to come back to uh, the whole issue of this uh, issue between uh, democracy mm. and authoritarianism. I think that this uh, sort of binary mm. is, from our perspective, is not the one we see. I think there are so many shades Uh, in between. And I think, uh, for example, in COVID, it was really government efficacy that really identified who did well and who didn't do well. But I believe that you do ultimately need, uh, perhaps in the middle between these two, you need something called governance. I think if uh, every uh, democratic attempt in the Arab world has turned ideological or tribal, so I'm not sure that this is really something that we can actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, work out very successfully here. But we do need governance. And governance, of course, includes a lot of components that are there. And I think this is perhaps the the middle between the two uh, binaries that you mentioned. Fred. Uh, that's uh, so interesting. We do need governments, though, folks, between authoritarianism and democracy. Democracy has failed in the Middle East, so we do need governments, folks. We do need governments. Well, I, I uh, advocate for the side of no government. That's where I stand now, because when you give these folks, these elitists, these power-hungry prison planet wardens, these technocratic overlords, the ability to rule over you, then they go to the far extreme, which ends up in authoritarianism in a tyrannical takeover and so if you want to debate them you probably have to go completely to the other side and be as extreme as they are and say no government just like you have to debate from the side of no technology it's just they put you in a position that that's what you have to debate because when you give them an inch folks they take a mile let's continue yeah and and becky i think i can pick up on dr gargash because i i agree with him completely that it's, it's a, in a way, it's a false narrative. Um, uh, the issue is government effectiveness and whether the people consider the government to be legitimate. Democracy is one way to achieve that. There are other ways to achieve it. And the legitimacy is gained by uh, governments that can deliver the goods, effectiveness to their people, <coughs> can deliver freedom, which people want, so ensure human rights. Can can the government deliver freedom to you? Isn't the very idea of a government anti-freedom? Having a body rule over you? 
That would be anti-freedom, but he's saying the government will deliver freedom to you. Rights ensure freedom, but at the same time ensure order, ensure, mm. ensure safety, ensure health care. Um, and, uh, and I think this new era of technological change going faster all the time, whether it's quantum computing or artificial intelligence or bioengineering, um, you know, these technologies are uh, morally neutral. Uh, and so the technologies can be used to enlighten. They can be used to gov deliver government services better. The, the technologies, I just want to point this out from my perspective, are not morally neutral. The technologies are morally in line with the morals and the ethics of the person or the body that funded its creation and for what purpose it's intended to be used. Okay, no one funded CRISPR gene editing to be morally neutral. It had a purpose and a reason for someone to develop it for the millions, if not billions of dollars that goes behind it. Artificial intelligence was not designed to be morally neutral. Someone funded the project. Someone created the project. I mean, that's, it's such a lie for people like that to say those type of things. Let's continue. They can use, be used to repress. They can be used mm -hmm. uh, 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 you know, to surveil in, in a way that, uh, that is, is, would be unhealthy. Um, and so I think to me that's really important. I'm going to say just one other brief thing on sanctions because I wanted to say this. Um, the dollar, um, uh, everyone's been predicting the demise of the dollar for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think it has a long tail. But if you overuse sanctions, more and more people will try to find a way around them. But Putin, since 2014, moved as far away as he could from the dollar in the U.S. And still, the G7 froze for the first time in history the uh, assets of a central bank, a G20 central bank. It wasn't because the U.S. did it. It's because the G7 did it. Mm. Without the U.S. and Europe together. And so I think it's really going to be a coalition of factors that will sort of decide uh, whether or not uh, you know uh, one one punishes, but I do think the dollar will last for a while yet. Uh, but it's not going to be uh, America alone. It's not going to be America first. It's got that's got to be America with others, and that's the only way uh, with our relative size and weight and GDP reducing. That, that the United States will indeed have influence in the world if, it be, if, if the country just becomes much cleverer mm. in building coalitions and working together with partnerships. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, we notice, for example, is if you allow a conflict to take a long time, then you have what I would call byproducts of the conflict. And I just think about the instability in Iraq and the war in Syria and the birth of ISIS, for example. If we had been able to resolve that issue mm. earlier, we would not have had the repercussions. So I'm very much with the latter thing, is I think that we do need in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is going to be a significant change in the international order. And I think the repercussions are going to be uh, quite deep and prolonged. But I think we do really need to find a political solution, and it starts with a ceasefire and a political solution, mm. ASAP. We need to do that because the danger of horizontal or vertical escalation is real, mm. and I think we should.
Okay, so they jammed in this stuff in Ukraine in the end. Not really interested in that, folks. I mean, this is going back into June. But the big takeaway here is you've got these uh, four elitist big people in the government, advisors, intelligence folks, talking about the idea of a new world order. And so the big thing that comes out of Pippa, who's in the world of technology, Silicon Valley, is this idea of the rise of the new financial system, the central bank digital currency. And I was really happy happy to see i mean i'm not happy about it but i was happy to see her say this at the world government summit it's important because if the world powers if all these countries that all have central banks that are all part of the world bank the bank for international settlements international monetary fund agree on the central bank digital currency system and cross-border interoperability there's not going to be any real tensions between any countries because they're all operating on the financial system whatever Everyone wants at the highest levels of these international bodies and these countries is power, control, and wealth. That's what they all seek out. That's what the countries want. So as long as the leaders in these various countries are allowed to make money, are allowed to grift off the system, are allowed to have power and control over their people and have a seat at the world table, then the system runs smoothly. My personal opinion is when you're looking at little wars break out, Russia, Ukraine, it's all orchestrated in the end. That's what I believe, folks. That's it. Are you ready for a new world order? These folks didn't seem to all be necessarily on the same page but they do agree on the idea that technology is going to bring the world together and they were all nodding when they were talking about the idea that the financial system will bring everyone together so keep your eye out folks as we move forward this is episode 113 114 i'll either have Dan Golbach on, or I'm going to move on to another subject. I think we've covered central bank digital currencies leading up into this discussion here at the World Government Summit. Uh, we've gone into depth on this, and frankly, um, it's just cluttering my head up, folks. I've talked enough about CBDCs. We've looked at the technology. I could go 150 episodes into this stuff, and I don't really want to do it. I need to move on to some other subjects before I go crazy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning in. Please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts along with a comment. Uh, feel free to join us at pain.tv slash gold for a few dollars a month. You get the ad-free video version of the Dust and Gold Standard and the Thomas Payne Podcast, as well as access to a Facebook-like app and website where you can meet like-minded folks, share information, educate other people, learn from other people. It's a great community. And if you'd like to, folks, a few people have done it. We really would appreciate it. Drop us a donation over at donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. It really helps out, folks, because we're in sort of a... Uh, bridge period now i'll explain it in the coming episodes uh the dust and gold center is kind of transitioning into a new form and we're trying to work our way to january 1st where we're going to be rolling out some new content and changing the way we do things over here and i'll be completely transparent as everything gets locked into place and i'll let you guys know exactly what is going on because you've been loyal and you've been following the show so spread this around to your friends and family people that are interested in understanding the true history of the world we live in understanding what's going on in the present and trying to make sense of where we're going in the future so that we can better navigate what lies ahead ladies and gentlemen i will see you later my name is dustin gold with the dustin gold standard right here at pain.tv slash gold the matrix is a computer generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being 
listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold.